0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black.
0: Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking to Eric Troop, former Assistant Director Near East with the CIA, and current founder at Azimuth Global. Eric is the former public sector executive with 30 plus years of combined experience at the CIA in the Marine Corps. After leaving the public sector, Eric founded Azimuth Global, a consulting firm that provides strategic advisory services to Fortune 500 companies in technology, national security, and strategic risk factors. Eric's last position in the government was as assistant director of the CIA Near East, where he led thousands of officers from different career disciplines and US agencies developed and executed multi-billion dollar budgets and tackled acute intelligence and foreign, military, uh, po- foreign policy challenges. So that was, that was a lot to say, Eric. So first of all, uh, welcome to Leaders in Legend and, and thank you for being guest today.
1: Well, Aileen, thank you so much for having me uh, on your show today. And I really look forward to today's conversation.
0: So, Eric, can you describe your leadership style?
1: You know, I've uh, been a leader now over three decades. And if you go back into my time in football before that, one could argue that was like leadership. But I've always put a people first sort of mantra as the, the core pillar of what I believe in as a leader. You've got to figure out how to focus on building a trust environment, and then really develop that next generation. Ultimately, to replace me once I move on, like I did to retirement or to some other type of assignment.
0: Is there? Do you ever alter your approach depending on the situation and or audience? I mean, I'm sure it was a lot different um, on the you know uh, you know planning for battles or or in the military versus maybe you know a a tight spot you were in, in your prior position at the agency.
1: I found it's absolutely essential, Aileen, to be prepared to adjust, um, not only what you're saying based on the audience, let's say if I was briefing a president or a foreign head of state or someone senior in my old organization or in the military, um, and then specifically about the situation itself, was it just a briefing? Was there a crisis involved? Uh, I can remember a time when I was uh, serving abroad. Uh, we'd had something pretty significant happen, and everyone around me was very much uh, uh, hair on fire, looking for sort of calmness and, and guidance. And I remember getting a call from the director, and uh, the director's comment was, You know, walk me through the situation. So I knew this was a person who's going to take the information I provided it and likely go and pass it on to. Uh, their bosses, either at the White House or somewhere else across uh, the interagency. So knowing who it was, giving them bite-sized sort of pieces to be able to describe very clearly what was happening and what I assessed, I think was a critical thing to that all leaders have to learn how to do.
0: You know, the subject areas that you covered in your last position at the agency are some pretty hot topics today. Um, did you have to alter your approach when it came to these politically hot subjects and how you provided that information in a, in a different fashion?
1: I think today's senior executives, whether you work in the intelligence community, the Department of Defense, elsewhere in uh, diplomatic roles, I think senior leaders are really expected to stay attuned to how to craft the right message How to ensure it lands in the way that you want and to not sort of draw people away from the core topics that you're trying to share. I think what I've learned is um, even if you're going to talk about something that's either controversial uh, in the public sort of domain or supercharged with respect to, you know, current U.S. bilateral relations with, with, let's say, China, um, the forging. Uh, but relations between China and Russia and how do you speak to that in a way that's constructive, uh, especially as a senior executive, when you're, many people in your team, especially your subordinate leaders, are watching uh, how you do this so that they can learn from this and then grow themselves in their careers. So,
0: Eric, you must have worked with some amazing leaders over your career, both in the military and in civil service. Can you define um, a great leader and maybe a leader that comes to mind in the past that provided you an incredible lesson?
1: You know, I, I've, I could go all the way back to my time uh, in college where I was playing football with coaches, but I think sort of let's go nearer. There's three that I would mention really briefly. And the first was my first battalion commander um, in the Marine Corps when I was at 1st Battalion, 8th Marines. Uh, the guy at the time was a Lieutenant Colonel, was Jim Paxton. And he was really a legend in the agency. And I was always amazed by his laser focus on mission, but never for one second losing the fact that he was, you know, an overseer and a leader of people, people from all walks of life, people who are having, you know, good days and bad days. And he never lost his uh, positivity, but then also had extraordinarily high standards that we all had to, to abide by. Uh, the next person who's very similar was a former deputy director of CA uh, many years ago, a guy named Steve Kappas. And Steve is an individual. He and I were you know, both former Marines, or you say once a Marine, always a Marine. And I greatly appreciated the care with which he took about uh, remembering people's names, their families, little small tidbits, almost down to the DNA level about, what made the people on his team tick. And I've always was fascinated by his ability to do it. And maybe a little daunted every time he would know everything about me. And I would be remiss to remember all the details about his background, but he too, just like, I think Jim Paxton, um, had that really core understanding of how to get the most out of teams without having to be a slave driver or someone who was more aggressive in their style. And then the last individual is someone who's a former agency officer, a very senior individual with whom I served four different times, both in, in the Washington area, but also abroad, um, was Chris Wood. And Chris is an exceptional person who led some of our largest war zone uh, stations abroad when I was in the agency, uh, was a core person involved with um the counterterrorism fight from really its inception the morning of 9-11 all the way through the time that he uh, he left, he too was one who had a view of putting people always first and that the mission would follow, setting those conditions for success, even when the chips were down. Uh, I, th- I think across all three individuals was a hallmark uh, and did, I think, uh, sort of set the, the cast for me as to how I should carry out my duties as a leader, uh, whatever job I was in.
0: So we talked about people who influenced you. There's always an opportunity in a leadership position over your career that you probably had what I would call a learning moment or one of those ah ahas that taught you the important lessons that you wish all leaders uh, had learned, maybe not the hard way. Can you share any story that might be
1: like that for you? Uh, Sadly, there are probably more than I'd have time to share. I mean, that's the nature of uh, learning uh, and also being a leader you're constantly going to, to fall down and, and do things that maybe just out of inexperience, you're not gonna know how to, to take those next steps. You know, when I was a more junior uh, officer, I think I, I would continually, I would look for what was the best thing I could do in that moment. And at times I don't think I took the appropriate steps to go through what were the variables, the pros and cons in each, and one story in particular was, uh, and I'll have to fuzz up some of these details, but I was I was abroad in a war zone and I was a junior officer at the time. And I say junior, I was a junior leader, but was in charge of a small installation. And then I wrote a document that was transmitted basically to um, the country next door and back to Washington and, and several other places that were uh, information IDs on the address line. And I was incensed by some behaviors that were undertaken by what I felt was a senior officer who was serving in the country next to mine and was not taking appropriate care uh, for what the situation required. Um, It was a really immature act on my part. Uh, I was throwing stones at a person who had far more experience uh, than I did. And I got, the moment that information sort of hit hit the wire, as they say, uh, the phone rang at the location where I was, and I uh, got a pretty good butt chewing from the person who was in charge of the, the country where I currently was located. I guess the the lesson learned for me is, one, we'll, we'll talk probably today about different types of communications and how being effective communicators uh, is essential for being a leader. But in my case, uh, what I don't think I did, and I did learn this uh, over time, was to be more discerning on did an email need to be sent? Even if I was upset about a topic, what was the best way to communicate that? And then there are times, even when something does drive you a little, um, let's say you're angry or frustrated by decisions being made, uh, all eyes are going to be on you uh, from the subordinate leaders. And then sometimes it's best to let a not so great note where the content might be a little edgy. you let it sit maybe for a few hours maybe overnight and revisit it and then really ask your question uh does that really need to be sent and is that really how i want to demonstrate and project myself as a leader
0: how do you define and measure that leadership success i mean uh, are there key metrics that you strive for as you're building out your teams i mean you you said people are at the heart of it and I, i heard and then the second part is helping develop them so that they can be that next generation leader. How how do you approach that to ensure that you or do you have a plan about how you make sure that that is happening and you're progressing on your goals?
1: You know, it's it's really hard. Uh, leadership it doesn't have that golden metric. Um, you know, if you are in the private sector and you're saying, well, we produce so many semiconductors in this, this quarter compared to the previous quarter or In sports, you had so many home runs or you had whatever other sport you were involved in. I find it difficult to come up with a metric. In fact, people who know me from government would say, well, Eric was never fond of metrics because I think it doesn't tell the full story. So what I always looked for were some of the more, now some might call these softer skills or softer outcomes by setting good conditions for an empathetic or a focused leadership style on people, but I found the places that I led where I was very focused on 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 taking care of people was there were fewer personnel problems. You know, uh, officers on their right and their left to treat each other with respect. We did have less issues of sort of hostile workplace conditions that might have uh, been exposed or brought to the fore. Um, I think I found junior leaders making better decisions because they were closest to mission. So rather than if I was an assistant director, making all the decisions for all of the departments that I oversaw, what I always felt was, have I delegated this down far enough to the people who are closest to mission and who have this sort of everyday information available at their fingertips, and then empower them to make those decisions such that we move at the speed of business. And we turn over the crank faster in a way such that we're able to respond to what is a very uh, at times frenetic and crazy world of intelligence where details change constantly all over the world and then you need to adjust. And then I also used an informal method, which um you know I found it helpful was to have trusted people who were junior leaders who I had served with before, and I would go hat in hand and I would humbly ask them, you know, whether it was mentors of mine, mentees of mine, and ask them direct questions like this, is is the messages we're sending out landing? Do you feel that you've got an appropriate degree of autonomy to get your jobs done? And if you had one thing to say that you were going to provide upward feedback on, what would that be? And then if I took all of those things, Aileen, and put them together and sort of shape a mosaic, I would get a fairly clear picture of what how I would define success for the work unit that I was in. And then the final thing I would say is, uh, and you have to be careful not to fall back too much on this, but as senior leaders, let's say at the director and the deputy director level, or even people outside of, of your home agency, provide feedback about briefings your team gave or responses to crisis moments uh, that may uh, happen in, in your area of responsibility and how you responded to those and documented, I think is another good uh, form of feedback that we can receive as leaders.
0: I'm speaking with Eric Troop, former assistant director near East with the CIA and current founder at Azimuth Global. After the break, we'll discuss the effects of leadership on culture. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network, I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network, I'm Elaine Black. And today I'm talking with Eric Troop, former assistant director near East, with the CIA and current founder, Asmuth Global. Um, Eric, earlier in the show, we talked about the differences of leading in military organizations versus civilian organizations, or at least we highlighted it. First off, I'd like to ask you, do you think there is a difference and does the leadership development approach with specifically the Marines lend to, to building better leadership? So first off, let's start off with civilian versus
1: military. You know, I've you've heard me say, I think already in today's podcast, that leadership tends to be leadership, whether it's private sector, law, medicine, higher education, the dealing with people and those interdynamics, I think, have some strong commonalities. I would say, though, if I juxtapose my time and tenure in the Marine Corps, and I, I was there roughly about 10 total years. And there's certainly a far greater degree of structure and uh, structure when it comes to the performance of, of leaders and how that leadership duties are carried out. So, for instance, uh, it might, might be viewed by some who are onlookers at the outside that it was more aggressive, you know, because there's the potential to be in some future combat situation, orders must be given more forcefully or they must be in a very set format. So, I think the, 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 the structure in which leadership is executed in the military side. Uh, is a bit more um, um, ironclad in a way than the civilian side is not. And the reason that is on the military side is leadership training is done at very specific intervals throughout an officer's career in the military. In fact, you won't take on a new job or duty and responsibility in the military unless you've had that appropriate level of training. Uh, In fact, there's an entire doctrine and training divisions and battalions that exist uh, across the the Marine Corps in particular and then the other branches of service as well that ensure that uh, those the curriculum for those courses adjusts and stay current with the times uh, as people progress throughout the years of their career they may have 10 to 12 or 15 more leadership courses let's say in a 20 to 30 year career now Comparing that to my time in the agency, you certainly had your entry level training where you learned the basic skills uh, of your job track and career, uh, career track that is. Um, And there are a few, let's call them directorate specific training modules that are roughly a one week long or so, but they're not exactly coded in the same way that they were done, uh, at least in my experience with my time in the military. The one difference for that is, whenever you were going abroad to serve as a chief of an installation of one of our overseas assignments or in the deputy capacity of one of those locations, um, you always had to take and then retake the course each time. So if you were a a chief of one of those sites uh, on four different occasions, you'd go through that course four different times. And the beauty of that is, uh, and I remember one of the last uh, chief assignments I had abroad I was in there with some first time chiefs. So I'd done it a few times before. And the, the great thing about that was the sharing and the, the interoperability of people's thinking and learning about what it meant to, to be in those uh, those leadership challenges and assignments. So I really do think it's different. I, I know one one sort of uh, plea I made as my parting shot to my leadership at the agency was to to try to more carefully align those training modules with certain key moments in people's uh, ascendancy in their career, such that they would be prepared uh, in a way, especially if they'd never done something quite like that before, uh, you increase that officer's chance, and then that organization they were about to lead, uh, the chance for success would go up significantly.
0: Now, earlier you talked about, you know, helping develop that next generation to take your role. Um, you know, what initiatives have you undertaken to develop and mentor emerging leaders within your organization to ensure that you have a strong pipeline for the future?
1: Well, uh, Aileen, I was blessed by having some great uh, leaders when I first started, people who took me under their wing and said, hey, Eric, this is what right looks like. And that stuck with me uh, throughout my career. In fact, the three people I mentioned earlier, I think, are reflective of, of the imprinting that they did. I found that Regular group discussions with subordinates are critically important to, leadership is not something you just do on some rote schedule, like, okay, in January and once a quarter, we will talk about leadership. I think there's spot leadership corrections, let's say when someone does something that's less than ideal or struggles to make the right decision, you don't have to come down on them hard necessarily. Um, Maybe in the moment you're saying, well, okay, let's fix what was done What did you learn from this? Why did you go down this path? I think those types of things and unpacking the decision process that people go through and then finding where those um, micro corrections can be made so that when they have that same type of situation again in future, they're more successful uh, in making better decisions. I think there's also an opportunity lost many times. And I tried to do this uh, to uh, fill that gap was coaching and mentoring while actually in meetings. So let's say you're going around the horn and one department comes up with a really tricky and intractable issue. And I might find there's a learning point embedded in there where you can say, that's that's a really interesting thing. For the group, you'll notice that one, let's just say, when, when John outlined this, this story for us, it brought up two of these three things. All of you in the departments face that similar type of thing. And let's talk for a minute about how you could avoid or how you could uh, address those, if, if that situation manifested in your sort of area of, of responsibility. Uh, those I found very, it doesn't have to drone on, it's just a, a moment of what I call spot coaching or spot mentoring And then I also would use formal courses. Uh, you know, I, I'd either do a formal mentoring program or I'd get together with all the entry level trainees for uh, half an hour to an hour and let them ask whatever question they want, And maybe impart three to five things I felt were useful at that early stage of their career. And then sometimes the last thing I would use was an exercise where they would have to focus the, the leaders I met with, maybe groups of three to five, and I would give them a project or something where they'd have to go back and write something that was uh, had an introspective look at where they were, where they wanted to go, and what they felt maybe were the shortcomings they currently had, and then how do we address those?
0: So you just came from uh, two organizations, um, both the Marine Corps and the CIA, that have a very strong culture. Um, what is the relationship between leadership and culture, and how does it affect culture? And, and I'm I'm putting it in, in in perspective of a of the legendary quote from Peter Drucker that says, "Culture eats strategy for breakfast." Now I I don't think it was saying that you know strategy was not important, but and empowering culture was a sure route to organizational success. So, in your experience at those two organizations, one, what do you think? And then
1: do you agree? Well, first of all, Alien, I, I love the quote. Uh, Peter Drucker's got some great books out there. And I mean, uh, time honored uh, lessons that he, he can promote um, and has done so for years. Uh, culture, eat strategy for breakfast. This is how I fundamentally see where if you do not have a strong, uh, if you do not have a strong set of leadership principles that are fully understood and absorbed up and down the chain of command. Uh, One of my former mentors used to talk about the congruency of leadership. So that would mean if the senior most leader of an entity believes strongly in something and outlined Let's say three or four core points that were going to be undertaken on a near daily, weekly, and sort of basis throughout his his or her tenure. Well, that needed to be fully understood all the way down to even the junior most leader, but ultimately even the the officers that worked for that leader. Now, if you if you don't have a a leadership structure such that focusing on taking care of others, being respectful, um, not having har- harassment in the workplace allowing people to make mistakes and learn and help correct them so they don't make them again if you do not have those sort of four to five things let's call it a five-legged stool you're you're never going to really be able to build a culture that lasts and the reason that is is you'll have infighting and over excessive competition between peers i mean there's naturally going to be competition in any whether it's the military or civilian government and I do think they're correctly directly correlated. But without the strong leadership framework, that has to come first. And then the culture that you you glean on the back end will only be as good as the leaders that you've been able to place in the positions of responsibility. And then consistently, I think I would argue there's another piece to that quote. You could say culture is re-earned on a daily basis. You revalidate it, whether it's being respectful for others, understanding that not everybody's going to agree. There's huge times over my last couple, three years in government, whether it was managing through COVID, dealing with foreign crises, uh, at times personnel challenges, all of those things. And the reason we were able to, I think, navigate those uh, as well as I think we did was because the culture we had cut all the way across like a lattice work from the Washington-based area to people serving abroad, up and down the chain of command.
0: I'm speaking with Eric Troop, former assistant director near East and with the CIA and and current founder at Azimuth Global. Coming up next, we'll talk about being a leader that is trying to lead through change. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Eileen Black, and today I'm talking with Eric Troop, former assistant director near East with the CIA and current founder at Azmuth Global. So, Eric, there have been so many articles about China winning the race around technology. What investments do you think the federal government leaders or private industry can make that will really matter to keep America in the lead for innovation and technology during these, especially, you know, with generative
1: AI and
0: the advances, you know, what do you think we should do?
1: Well, I've, you know, having had a front row seat to this uh, just over, you know, a, about 14 months ago when my last, I left my last job, It was fascinating to watch how it manifested, uh, that conversation manifested inside the the government sort of sector. You know, now that I'm on the outside, I, I definitely have a different perspective and it's really become a bit of a passion project for me. And what I'm about to say, I intended not to be controversial, but I think aspects of the acquisition process, both across defense and even parts of the US intelligence community are a bit broken. And what I mean, broken, it's it's out of no want and disregard about the professionals that work in there, but I think it's it's the foundations of those acquisition um, parameters and how we bring technology into government uh, has really been is struggled over the last few years. Uh, it's often been dominated by the large government or defense prime companies, uh, and I, that's certainly understandable. But with the speed of business and the speed of technology adoption across Um, uh, the government now, it's critical that we're able to accelerate that process and then deliver to what I'll still use is deliver uh, talents and expertise to the warfighter. And this can range from everything involving uh, generative AI to uh, drone and counter drone technologies, uh, abilities to be more effective at our cyber defense across uh, inside of government. And then I really do think as you watch the jousting back and forth and at times the up and down frenetic nature of our bilateral relations between the United States and China. Um, you know, we talked about an arms race before, one could argue we're in a tech race. And that tech race is made even more complicated by some of the partnerships or rather um adversary alliances that have started to to take uh place over the last sort of let's say couple of years. I mean there's always been adversaries um who look to partner with one another especially against the united states and that's now starting to line up here with russia and china collaborating uh russia and north korea korea in conversations about uh, arm shipments and other things but on technology i think the best investments are going to be those that enable us to keep a competitive advantage and edge over what is the largest strategic uh, threat to i think uh, u.s national security and that's the 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 People's Republic of China. Um, uh, Let's hope we don't get to a hot war. I know that's a a, a widely contested question about what's the timing, when will it happen? But I think it's rooted right now in, um, you know, the intelligence community is highly active, the defense community is is highly active to ensure we're appropriately prepared. prepared, And that one huge uh, cornerstone of that is going to be able to bring the most advanced technologies uh, into government across a whole different of domains and parts of government to be the most successful we can and push back on on adversary countries like China.
0: You know, you, you've had roles both with Russia and China in your prior positions. And in these countries, as you mentioned, um, you know, there's there's forces joining forces and certainly that is happening. And, and uh, you know, the call to action, I think, uh, uh, Putin uh, says it calls it the "forever war" with the the West. Uh, what what are your thoughts of the potential use of of technology? And you know, like you said, the the rules sometimes work against our ability to be able to truly innovate um, and very quickly adopt um, this technology. Do you think? Uh, do you think? This is a a big problem. and and what would your be your advice to the Biden administration to kind of change that clock speed of technology innovation um, and adoption within our, our the u s. government when you're dealing with some pretty sticky issues with generative AI, right?
1: Absolutely. I think this is there's no better example to sort of as a jump off point for this discussion uh, on this issue than uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February of last year. Um, It was amazing how the US defense architecture along with our European allies uh, were able to pull together quite hastily uh, a whole range of material support assistance and, and defense spending, or rather defense material that was shipped to Ukraine to help use uh, to fight back against uh, Russia's uh, and Putin's invasion. Um, I will say, though, for starters, I should have opened with this. There's, there's no country in the world that's got the, the most advanced technology and ability to uh, undertake warfare, either through allies and proxies or through uh, uh, our our amazing US military, of uh, the United States of America. It is pretty awesome to watch, having been part of it and seeing what national power can look like uh, in trying to address a whole range of security issues, not the least of which is how Russia's invasion has started to impact, you know, partnerships with NATO and it's, it's depleted and it's made it much more difficult for the United States to keep up its own resource stocks uh, and strategic reserve when it comes to weapons. Uh, there's been all kinds of relationships brokered with European partners to uh, ship materiel uh, to the Ukrainians for their use. And I have to say, having been part of a, a number of different uh, material assistance programs to a, a, a broad array of, of foreign uh, actors and partners of ours, um, it's, it's remarkable how the Ukrainians have taken that material, used it in a very constructive way, and I would argue you know, leveled the playing field uh, in a manner that I just don't think that President Putin could have actually managed. I think the early outset of the war, um, he had planned a victory parade in the capital of Kiev in Ukraine three days, three days after uh, the planned invasion. And boy, that's, that's certainly not turned out as we get close to 18 months. Uh, When it comes to sort of messages, um, I I don't care whether it's this administration, the foreign administration or the next administration. I think a healthy review of what's the most important technology that we're actually going to need um, to be the most competitive and protect America in the most effective way. Then it's how do we truly reinforce the private public partnership in a way that we just maybe haven't done so in the past you know, you think all the way back to World War II, where uh, um, auto manufacturers were used for making metal that would be used in planes or, or 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 naval vessels or ammunition or whatnot. One could argue, you know, we're not quite on a war footing quite yet, of course, with either Russia or China, but I think we have to be prepared. We have to ensure that across all of these things, do we have the right regulation for AI? Are we appropriately helping private sector companies be the most defended uh, from the various ranges of, of cyber threats and cyber th- risks that are out there? And then are they backed up Are the appropriate talent and personnel in those agencies to receive things from the private sector and then apply them towards the national defense strategy that cuts across everything that we do and then how that's linked with the intelligence community?
0: There's no doubt I agree with that the. US is is the most advanced and, and prepared but it you know if you were president or uh, do you think uh, AI could change the balance of power and and the possibility of being able to maintain peace?
1: Well let me open with and a lot of people actually I'll get this from client questions or others with whom I interact in the private sector and even some that are still in government. They ask, you know, Eric, wh- where do you stand on AI? And I, I, I hearken back to when the internet first came out. And this was many, many years ago. And people were talking about, oh, what's this new thing, the internet? How is it going to change our world? And if you recall, many people at the time were equally as concerned about what this could mean for uh, um, our society. How is it going to change? How is it going to, in fact, impact our youth, how we learned, how we did business? And I think those same questions and concerns are, are rearing their head now. I am of the view, I'm less scared of what people are calling the movie, the, if you recall the movie The Terminator, where Skynet became self-aware and you had autonomous vehicles uh, coming after what was the human race at the time. Uh, I'm not sure we're quite there. They talk a lot about maintaining or keeping a human in the loop. I think that's going to be critical. Uh, I think regulation to some degree is going to be necessary. But when it comes to, I don't even think we've scratched the surface with all that AI can do. I mean, the compute power and the ability of these large language models to to learn and get faster with larger data sets that get put in front of them, they get smarter, they build on one another And then the the next thing, the next shoe to fall, I think, Eileen, is going to be how does quantum computing integrate with AI? Those two forces together could conceivably become a a game changer, which gives a national power across the world um, a different dynamic or let's call it a competitive advantage to be more successful on the global stage in the event that there was, uh, you know, a conflict.
0: You know, I. I, I work for um, a company by the name of Grok and there's, there's tons of, um, not tons of, but there's several very small innovative companies out there that are coming up with technology that can definitely, you know, unleash the power of things like large language models. But there's also a challenge of balancing, you know, making sure that that technology stays in the continental United States. Um, versus the challenge of making sure that you uh, have the ability to have these companies uh, take advantage of markets outside of the continental United States and and have capitalism at its finest. What are your thoughts on on regulation of our technology and allowing it to be sold beyond our borders?
1: Well, I think there's there's probably not a more partisan issue right now in Congress than you know being concerned about, the export of our most advanced technology, whether that's in the form of AI tools, whether it's in the form of highly sophisticated semiconductors and chips that are used to, to power these AI models or algorithms. Um, as you've probably seen in, in the press, and I again I, I discuss this with, with clients I have extensively, is the US Department of Commerce has become much more uh, aggressive as a matter of US policy in clamping down on the export of those technologies, either to you know, end user countries, and we talk about end user certificates about who's going to use it. Those even broader concerns if we were to, to give some of these chips to let's say a country that's an ally, does, does China make an effort to either go directly to that ally of ours and either ask for some of the chips or possibly try to procure in some fashion some of those chips. I think you have to have guardrails in place. Um, I think the term, when you think of the two terms that are currently most active out in the discourse, they talk about decoupling, which is I think a more severe um, determination where you actually would completely delink. Uh, and I think there's uh, it's almost $8 billion a year that the United States has just with China uh, when it comes to trade. And that's an enormous piece of the, the global market. I think if if you were to have a full-on decoupling, I think it could cause uh, a much far-reaching uh, ramifications to the global economy and certainly to the US economy at a time where ours is still, I think, uh, had a bit of a, um, a, a challenge in working through interest rates and in the market and housing market and all of those things. Now, I, I do think also that it beyond just that, it's ensuring that the countries recognize we're not trying to stop all manner of engagement with them. So the other term that's used out there is de-risking. So that's what I think is the U.S. uh, policy's focus as they move forward and trying to trim and and add language into uh, certain requirements on export. Well, that's done through Treasury and through Commerce and uh, uh, BIS and others. Uh, All those things, I think, uh, are important to have as part of a decisional framework to ensure that a company doesn't choose on its own volition to go and provide something because they're trying to boost their business. And while I can appreciate their their interest in doing so, uh, it can't be done at the expense of US national security.
0: You're listening to Leaders and Legend: Government on Federal News Network. I'm Eileen Black, and today I've been talking with Eric Troop, former Assistant Director Near East with the CIA, and current founder at Azimuth Global. Next, we'll find out what Eric's advice is to the next generation's leaders. You're listening to Leaders and Legend: Government on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Eileen Black, and today I'm talking with Eric Troop, former Assistant Director Near East with the CIA, and current founder of Azimuth Global. So Eric, there are so many um, articles out there about empathetic leadership. Uh, You know, you talk about people first. Do you lead with empathy?
1: You know, I think I learned it as a a child. Uh, Only child uh, grew up in Massachusetts. Uh, My parents were very um, keen on just having a basic set of principles that you lived by. You know, I talk about core values. Maybe that's a better way to characterize it. And empathy from the from just being a human being and understanding what someone else is going through, you're putting yourself proverbially in their shoes, walking a day in, in 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 their lives, does help you. I think as a leader, you're less uh, egocentric in your decision making, and it's not a matter of being soft on others; it's a matter of understanding. And that comprehension, I think, is it's been critical. I saw it again in COVID. There was some very uh, fragile uh, officers that I worked with who were understandably scared. They either had their own health concerns, uh, elder, uh, elder care concerns of maybe their parents or other loved ones. Um, and all of those things fed into the need to just not be there and have a draconian approach to to leadership. It was recognizing that not everybody had the same views to say towards COVID. Uh, the same could be said on, on, on missions. Uh, you know, when I've served in some of the war zones, people work 20 hours a day, and they they'd go there for sometimes short duration trips, anywhere from 60 to let's say 90 days, or even maybe a bit shorter. And they would compress almost a year's worth of work into that time. And the the empathy needed to go to them and say, look, I, I know you want to do well, you're you're a, you're a hard charger, and you're you're doing a remarkably uh, skilled job at your tasks, but you got to pace yourself. You got to be able to understand that you won't be any good. And if you're a leader out here, you have to be still in good form. So only have empathy towards officers, but then impart on them that they have to have empathy towards themselves uh, just because otherwise they're going to peter out.
0: You know, in preparing for this uh, interview, I was having dinner the other night with my son. I was thinking about asking you about, you know, you, you've had decades of public service uh, both in the Marines and as in the civilian uh, sector, the civilian service with the CIA. And it was right after it was 9-11. I was talking to my son and he was six months old when 9-11 happened. So, you know, he really didn't have that experience. And when we're looking at this current generation and and getting them to do this very important work, which has to do with the mission and the support of the United States, Um how, how can, did something inspire you and how can we inspire the next generation to, to have that same spirit of giving back and being part of that mission?
1: Well, I'll tell you, you know, I think many people will recall uh, throughout history where they were at, at key moments. And, you know, 9-11 for me and for so many of my colleagues, many of whom served in the, uh, the paramilitary ranks at the agency, Friends and 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 people that I know across the entire U.S. Special Operations community. I mean, just across all of government, how much the morning of 9/11 was a seminal moment for us. Many of us lost friends, some lost family, and I've never seen a nation sort of more codified in its belief that standing up against terrorism uh, in the way that we did was the was the absolute not only right thing to do, but was um, We are all proud to do it, you know, and with every year that passes, you know, we never forget those that we lost. There are all kinds of very uh, appropriate tributes to 9-11. And we just had one not that uh, long ago uh, last week. And yet um, our society society changes, you know, I think of it in terms of like the youngest generation of officers that come into the agency. Uh, I know sometimes that would frustrate some peers and colleagues of mine. Who would come and say how do i lead this new generation you know they're they're either more needy or they're demanding and i would say well they're super talented they're technologically more uh greater apt- aptitude than you or i'll ever have so why don't we figure out how to harness all of that and point it in a good direction and and weaponize it in a way that's good for our country and i think there needs to be you know it's almost like a call to action across our nation i actually spoke Uh, at a speaking event uh, for the Boy Scouts of America National Jamboree. I think it was about, it was in July and drove out to West Virginia. And I was part of a very esteemed group of speakers. So I was honored just to even be on the podium and talking about leadership. And we had people from corporate America. Uh, We had General Stanley McChrystal there, uh, CEO of Alaska Airlines. And we just talked to these thousands of young uh, scouts who were wanted to hear about leadership and we shared some lessons. And I I mean, just my thought is more of that discourse needs to happen about what it means to serve and what does it mean to do something that's bigger than you are and to give back. And and frankly, we've been benefactors of all the sacrifices dating back to every foreign war that our nation has fought and all the lives and blood that have been shed. Um, I think every generation needs to step up and find a way to contribute uh, and do its part.
0: Well, first off, thank you for doing that. Your career and your success, you've had, there's are just, just truly inspirational. Any personal pearls of wisdom that you would have for the next generation or maybe uh, what you would tell, uh, you know, maybe your kid or your cousin or, or you know, somebody close to you?
1: Well, I, I have two adult kids uh, in their early, uh, early, mid-20s. And, you know, I often talk with him about, you know, doing the right thing, challenge yourself, and I think I would offer very similar comments to anyone listening who aspires to. You know, I would say maybe don't aspire to be me, personally. In fact, if I go back to Steve Kappas, he used to say, you know, it's great if you think that I do something well, but talk to 50 people and take a small tile mosaic and put it together in your own picture of leadership, and that really resonated with me. And I think I would offer the same. You know, follow follow your passion. I know that sounds like a bit of an overused expression, but there's so many things out there to be passionate about. New technology, uh, service to your country or or service to family, um, pushing yourself to the limits when it comes to learning. I think there's got to be a constant desire to learn and, and take personal responsibility for where you are. You know, I know a lot of uh, uh, young men and women sometimes who frustrated me Partly because they would say, Well, I want to be the, at the next level. And I would ask them, Well, what are you doing to get there? And they sometimes would just expect it to happen. So I think there's the delta about going from where you are to where you define success is, is going to take nothing short of a good, focused effort, constant, constant work on your, you know, hammering on your trade, whatever that is. And then at times, a little bit of luck, and uh, and I think karma goes a long way into getting to where you want to be.
0: You've been listening to Leaders in London Government. My guest today has been Eric Troop. Eric, uh, again, I just want to thank you for your years of public service and your dedication to this nation. And I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal uh, journey and, and a lot of really good advice.
1: Well, thanks, Eileen. It's been a pleasure to be here with you today on the show.
0: I'm Eileen Black. Thanks for listening.
1: You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.